Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Bill Telephone uh, Education Series. Dr. Bill Takeshita is the Director of Children's Programs for the Center for the Partially Sighted here in Los Angeles, as well as Consulting Director of Low Vision Training for Braille Institute. The Dr. Bill Telephone Series is an educational program focusing on pediatric eye conditions for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with young children with visual impairment. The topics presented should not be considered a medical or educational consultation, but information to help us better understand pediatric eye conditions. Tonight's topic is head tilt, head turns, and toe walking. Are these indicators of a vision problem? And we are very honored to have Nancy Dilger as our special guest. Nancy is a certified neurodevelopmental treatment physical therapist and works at her private practice, Footprints Pediatric Physical Therapy, in Los Angeles. She graduated from Florida International University in Miami and went on to earn her master's degree in developmental disabilities from New York University. The following year, she completed additional studies in motor control and motor learning at Columbia University. Since 2006, she has participated in the development of NDT-based therapies for children in Bangalore, India, and has returned there many times to give assistance and lectures at Baidahai Institute. Nancy completed her NDT Pediatric Certificate course in 1983 and has been recognized by the American Physical Therapist Association as a board-certified pediatric clinical specialist in science And that is very impressive, Nancy. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Nancy. And this is a, a, a real treat for all of us. And I just want to say that one of the very first people that I met in the field of Pediatric care, when I graduated from optometry school back in 1987, was uh, Nancy Dilger, and I attended a seminar. I just couldn't believe all the different things that I learned, you know, and it made me realize one thing in particular was that when we work with children, whether we're a specialist in occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, optometry like myself, it is not enough just to look at our own specialty. We are dealing with the entire child. And so even when we're working with children who do have low vision, for example, we are always paying very close attention to their posture, the way that their motor skills work, look at their breathing, and so many other things. So I owe all of that to Nancy for teaching me the importance of looking for all of those things. So thank you very much, Nancy. Well, you know, one of the things when Sue was reading your bio, I don't know if everybody here on the call is completely aware of some of the things, but I do know that you are trained in NDT. And would you explain to the audience what is NDT? Because I know that not all physical therapists are NDT certified? Well, NDT stands for Neurodevelopmental Treatment, and it's an approach that was first founded by the Bobas um, in England in the 60s. And when they brought their ideas to the United States, it was translated into neurodevelopmental treatment. And it's a it's a training that um, one undergoes postgraduate, um, so it's not in school. We may, in, in uh, therapy training, when we're training as therapists, we have 
all different approaches that we study. And although I'm an NDT trained therapist, I use many, um, many other um, therapy approaches as well. But in terms of NDT, that's always been my go-to. Uh, that's where I developed my and honed my handling skills because working with children, that's my way of communicating is through my hands. Um, especially young children or children that are nonverbal, children who are globally delayed, my hands are my communicator. And I, I attribute that to my NDT training. But I'm also trained, um, I'm also, uh, I've completed an 11-week SI training. I, I've trained in visceral manipulation. I've trained in craniosacral therapies. I've trained in many different approaches and um, that I I utilize to when I work with my um, my patients. I know, and I know that all of those different treatment modalities that you do have, it has been just so wonderful for so many of the patients that uh, we have worked on together. Now, one of the things that I know a lot of the optometrists who do come to our center and they want to learn about how can you evaluate the vision of a young infant? They often ask, what is really the difference between what a physical therapist does and what does an occupational therapist? Sometimes the doctors think that the OTs work with the upper body and PTs work with the lower body, but can you explain uh, that particular type of confusion that people have? Well, I explain it like um, as a physical therapist, my um, my area, what I look at is uh, a, myself um, is gross motor, but also postural structural alignment um, of the entire body. Occupational therapists, like the occupational therapists that work with me, um, what they specialize in is um, they're more prone to... Um, working with upper extremity fine motor skills, eye-hand coordination. Um, a lot of um, OTs, especially in Southern California, are um, trained in sensory integration, um, and more so than PTs. Like the occupational therapist that works with me does a lot of feeding, and um, that's one of her specialties. So those are things. And, and a lot of times they do overlap. Um, and complement one another, but um, there there obviously is is very very defined differences. I mean, in, in terms of my practice, I also do, and um, I have an entire specialty in in orthotics. I do all my own orthotic interventions, and I and I do do upper extremity um, casting and splinting and things like that as well. So, I mean, there is some overlapping, and I was actually trained by a, a very very well-known occupational therapist, Audrey Yasukawa, who um, trained me in upper extremity um, casting and, and splinting. So, um, you know, so there, there is a lot of overlap, Dr. Bill, especially in pediatrics. And, um, and I think, um, but when it comes to things like um, the gross motor and gait training, that's really definitely a more um, in the physical therapy realm. Um, but I like to think that if it's, if, you know, if I have a child who I'm seeing um, from an, who's, like, say, an infant and, 
as they're developing, and I see that there are, are significant sensory issues. So even though I'm an SI-trained um, PT, I feel that the occupational therapist that I work with um, is much better uh, to deal with that specific area. And um, so I have no problem, like, making that recommendation or making that referral because I think it, it's, it's better for the child to get the, the expert in that area. So all in all, it really does make sense when we do see that a child is receiving both physical and occupational therapies at the same time. It is not where a physical therapist should be doing things that the occupational therapy should not or vice versa. You really can work hand-in-hand hand together very well. Oh, absolutely, and complement one another, you know, um, for sure. Because nobody, nobody can be an expert in all areas. I do all my own casting and um, assessing for orthotics. And um, if you would ask your question again, I don't want to misinterpret it. No, that's, that's quite all right. But I wanted to know, is that something that all physical therapists are trained during that training curriculum uh, to fit orthotics? And can you also explain what are orthotics used for? Because you, you definitely have helped my daughter with orthotics. Um, well, my, it depends on what we're looking at in terms of orthotics. You can get um, a low-profile foot orthotic. You can do um, ankle foot orthotics, which are usually orthotics that are below the knee. And then um, I've also, I also do my own long-leg orthotics and making my own standing frames and things like that. Not all physical therapists are trained in that. Um, usually an orthotist does, but I was trained by a pediatric podiatrist um, back in the early 80s when I was in graduate school. And I um, have always felt very comfortable, with, I consider it my artistic side, to do my own um, orthotics. And it's been, you know, I've been very fortunate because it's been very well received um, by the healthcare community um, in terms of, you know, physicians and parents recognizing my, um, this area that, of strength. So um, I, it depends on what the individual needs. Um, if we're looking at a, uh, a child who's not walking yet, I tend to not put them in any orthotics because I like to get, um, especially in, we're talking about an infant toddler, I like to get the sensory input into the foot. Um, however, the same child who needs to be in a standing program may need orthotics for when they're in the standard to optimize their alignment. Um, on the other hand, Working with the child in therapy with the orthotics, it can sometimes become an obstacle. But some children have issues, like say, for example, I have this one five-month-old baby right now who um, has a diagnosis of Down syndrome, but in addition had a club foot. And so he has just been seen by this one physician who is, I'm, I'm very relieved, to uh, follow him utilizing the Ponsetti method. And um, I've seen this method in um, uh, applied before, and it's been extremely successful, and it is the most successful approach to children with clubfoot. And um, 
So he came in today, just today, and he had um, he has to wear these braces 23 hours a day for the next three months. And as a physical therapist, um, you know, I I feel like it's my responsibility to be creative and say, okay, well, this is really important for this child's alignment for the rest of his life. So I definitely want to work with the orthopedist and, you know, and be supportive of that approach. Um, it's, it's the one hour off a day so that, you know, if he has a bath or something to that effect, but I mean, so as a PT, I think that it's important for me to be able to adapt and, and, still teach the family, you know, handling skills and um, ideas, how to work with him developmentally in the next, especially the next three months, because he's five months now. So in eight months, I don't want him being any less stronger. And um, so, you know, I think, I I think it kind of depends on the situation. So um, that's an example where this child is really locked into a certain position. And, you know, I have to put on that very creative hat to, you know, keep the, keep the sessions going in the next three months. And then, um, and then we have kids who sometimes they, they really need, may need a little bit more bracing and uh, may need to go above the knee or may need to be in a standing frame that we don't, we can't get commercially, but um, I've, I've casted for them before and, and, and have made um, devices for children to stand in uh thanks to my very creative lab that pulls it out of materials that are actually uh, used for prostheses. There's a different type of plastic. But um, so I, my mother was an artist, so I, I, I credit her for my creativity. Wow, that's really something. That's really something. So, you know, it really shows that uh, a physical therapist may have really a, a very, very large set of different tools that you use and uh, it's really impressive, Nancy, how you were able to receive all of this different type of training from some of the world's best in these areas. And we're, we're really glad we have you here in Los Angeles. Oh, you're so sweet, Dr. Bill. Thank you. We're <laughs> lucky to have you, too. <laughs> well, you know, getting to the topic of tonight, though, you know, as an eye doctor, one of the things that people often will come to our office for mm-hmm. is the fact that their children, they do not have a straight head posture. And in, in some cases, we may find that the child who is now beginning to sit upright, they may have a head turn where the chin is mm-hmm. turned towards either the left or the right shoulder. Mm-hmm. And as mm-hmm. eye doctors, we look at that very carefully because that could be an indication that the child prefers to use one eye over the other eye because the child sees better out of that eye. So, mm-hmm. for example, if a child turns her head to her left shoulder, many times they are looking through the right eye. Mm-hmm. Another thing that may happen, though, is that they may also turn their head towards a shoulder to eliminate seeing double vision because if Mm -hmm. the eyes are just slightly misaligned, uh, the child will see double vision, and this is a way that they could eliminate seeing double vision. So what does a head turn typically mean to you when you first see an infant with this particular type of a head turn? A lot of times um, it's funny because the developmental pediatricians that I worked with, we... we, um, we discuss this a lot. Um, we're seeing because we see more children with head tilts, and um, 
actually reflux as well um, because of the back-to-sleep program, but nobody's going to touch that. So um, if a child comes in and, and I get, you know, I get like six calls a week on children with either head tilt or torticollis. Um, the torticollis is when the muscle in the neck is actually shortened and it's um, shortened on the side of the ear to the shoulder. And so the, the chin will turn to the opposite direction. And, um, but usually it's, it's, it's frequently positional, but um, what I look for as, as well is with that head tilt, my concern, and this is the, the visceral training, which is an osteopathic approach, um, is the effect on the, um, on digestion. Because if the child has a head tilt and um, they could be causing like a, a soft tissue or smooth muscle compression, especially on the cardiac sphincter, which is the sphincter that goes from the esophagus into the stomach. And so you can also be getting um, or encouraging reflux. And so um, these are things that I think need to be looked at. So with those children... I, I look to do early positioning to get them as symmetrical as possible for those reasons um, because it, it's, it's just like a, a snowball effect. You know, you get the head tilt and then you've got the reflux and, and they're, they don't like being on their stomach. So it's really hard to, and, and then when you do, because of the reflux, it, it encourages the reflux as well. So these are things that, that I look at um, early on to get more midline symmetry and especially you know and if and we are having problems with that that's you know from working with me that you frequently see these kids because um i want to know what their functional vision is you know if it's possible to determine that and when when they do have this particular type of a a head tilt the torticollis let's say that the left ear is towards the left shoulder Mm -hmm. Uh, what is what is the first thing that you would tell the parents as far as what kinds of exercises they should do, or is it the way that they should carry the child, or do you actually put them in a different type of a, a device that would force them to straighten their head? Well, well, I never I never force them. Number one, actually, that, that's probably a controversial, and um, the the therapist in the in the audience might gasp when I say this, but I don't do any stretching. Um, I use a lot of manual therapy with these children. Um, I worked, I work with, um, at the, um, the Octoput, I work at the, uh, the Octoput, the, the, the sacrum and the sternum, the flat bones, um, working on alignment, encouraging alignment. I also work intraorally to um, encourage more midline alignment because a lot of times you start getting um, um, restrictions in their bodies and they respond, the babies respond so well to this type of manual therapy to get that midline symmetry. And then what I teach the family to do, obviously, is to, to position the baby so the babies to discourage that type of a tilt. Now, sometimes there are there there may be a congenital shortening of the muscle. And um, that's something that we might look at in terms of um, there, there's, there may be collars that would be used, but that, that's so rare. 
I, I rarely see that. I find that when I, I position them, even in their car seat or their infant seats, that I can get them to um, reorganize to the midline quite successfully. And then when I teach the, the family, you know, how to, how to work with the babies, you know, encouraging them into the prone position, encouraging sideline, so that we get we start getting the baby's um, head riding on their body and the body riding on their head, so that we can encourage again more mobility, more activity, and and of course more postural symmetry. Now, Nancy, you had mentioned that a lot of times you're doing different types of oral oral is it manipulation. Um, what is it that you what is it that you touch or what do you push or try to apply pressure to we, we can do well it's it's funny because the um you can you can affect the sphenoid bone which is the keystone just like the it's really like from head to toe but the talus is the keystone of the foot but the sphenoid bone is the keystone of the, the keystone of the um the cranium and that bone can articulate with every bone in the in the skull and also um, through the occiput down into the vertebrae. So by um, using like uh, maxillary um, uh, skills, you know, skills that I address the maxillary alignment and then uh, and the sphenoid bone, it actually works really nicely. I did this with Janie too. Wow, <laughs> she was a baby, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's really, so really. Looks, yeah. Yeah. You know, I know it that. Um, really nicely. When I was seeing. Um, um, uh, osteopath, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is when I was first starting to lose my sight and go blind. All of this treatment that he wanted to do, it was all in the mouth, and he was pushing up on the maxillary area in certain parts of the sphenoid and such. So, right, it, it's, it's right. something exactly. we don't think about. It's very, very powerful. And the reason right. I say this is very important for us as optometrists. And the ophthalmologists understand this is that the sphenoid bones are the bones that create the orbit, the eye socket. So exactly. the eyeball is positioned inside this eye socket where the sphenoid bone is. And so when you mm-hmm. do make those types of manipulations, it, it can alter the posture of where the eyes are pointing. It's amazing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. See, and, and that's. And and before I was I was uh, trained training with the osteopath in in my NDT training years ago we also um, I was trained in feeding so I'll do like a lot of intraoral stuff a lot of times with my with my babies and my younger children um, with developmental issues so it all kind of complements one another you know. Yeah, I think that's just really, really amazing. Now, now, when a person who is, a, say, that it's a mother or a father, and they do notice that their child, let's say they have a son who's four months old and his head is tilting, um, should a parent actually be able to feel some sort of restriction or tightness of the muscles on the one side? Or if the it's, parent it's tries not necessarily. To... No. No, not necessarily, because like I said, a lot of times there really there really isn't uh, a tightening in the in the muscle. It's um, it's you know that's in my experience has been 
pretty rare where you, you know you actually get a shortening of the muscle, the neck muscle itself. Um, at, at four months, I mean, if the child because they've been to the pediatrician a few times by then, and you would hope that that would be picked up, you know, that the child's not you know moving their head or they're not they don't have that range or they're stuck in one position. But um, you know, at, at, I, I you know at four months, actually four months developmentally is a very midline symmetry period. You know, it's where the baby, when you put them on their back, they'll start to bring their hands to the midline and let's start, they'll start to lift their, their legs up. They may not grab their feet yet, but they, you know, they're bringing their legs up, but it's a, it's a time of midline. It's the beginning of midline symmetry and getting that anti-gravity flexion. So that, if their that baby's head is turned to one side, that's, that's like a huge red flag. Oh, well, that's very good to know. And, and the thing to think about, too, Bill, is that in, it, the baby is born, the, the spine is 20 centimeters in length, and then it doubles within the first year of life. And that's significant. Yeah. You know, so if, okay. if the head is tilted to one side, that, that is translated all the way down to the sacrum. Wow. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I mean, the implications there are are, um, are quite significant because, you know, you not only have postural structural, but you have visual, you have digestive, so they're shifting to one side. Maybe the baby is having trouble um, even in terms of, of maybe latching if they're breastfeeding and stuff like that. So that's a, that's a, you know, you would hope that that would be picked up by four months. You know, you also had mentioned that these babies who do have the head tilt, uh, they often do not like to be on their stomach. Uh, what mm-hmm. is the main reason for that? Is that the anatomical reason why they don't like to be on the stomach? Well, most babies don't like to be on their stomach. Um, I would say most of them don't, but, you know, it's – and, and there's, there's fun little ways to kind of trick them to get that weight-bearing – um, it's it's in, obviously it's important so that they develop that anti gravity extension and they they decrease the sensitivity in the oral motor area and they get the pressure in through the the gut for approximation and things like that. But when they don't like being on their stomach, it may be because it, especially if they're if they're reflexes or if, if they do um, have a head tilt, it may be particularly difficult for them to pick their heads up or it may be because it, it is hard for them to pick their heads up when they they are prone. So, you know, sometimes it's 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 good to have little tricks like, you know, you put them over your lap so they're a bit slanted so they're not sinking into gravity and then they can uh, and and you do it for shorter periods of time or you or you carry them so you get some pressure on their um, you know, in, in the crook of your arm so you put pressure on the on the gut area and help them with developing their head control in that position. Um, but, you know, that's, and that's what makes it a little harder or more challenging too is the, the back to sleep because the, the babies are always put on their back and not so much on their stomach. And then, you know, the, when the parent goes to put them on their stomach, it's too much work and they may be crying and, you know, and new parents especially, you know, don't know how to handle that. And so it's it's little tricks like that that you may suggest that, uh, make it uh, a little bit more um, acceptable 
you know, to the baby and then obviously to the parent. It's it's very funny you ask me this because my neighbors just have a newborn and it's their first one and it's just I'm I'm like <laughs> you know, it's it's different, you know, it's different as a clinician but it's different as a parent, you know? Yeah. So uh-huh. yeah, wow. you all laugh. <laughs> 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 Been there done that. <laughs> You know, what about the situation when a child is not tilting the head? You know, in other words, the ear is not resting Mm -hmm. towards the shoulder, but they keep their head straight, but they they simply turn it. Does that have some specific uh, uh, indications to you when you see that a young infant is just turning the head that way? Or is that more of a a visual behavior? Well, that... when you say young infant, like how old? Because that's the first thing I think of is is, is vision. You know, if they're turning yes. their head a certain way, that that's the first thing I think of is is vision. Yes. But it depends on the on the age. You know, I mean. Yes. Um, I, I, that would yeah, be this... that would be your area, Doctor Bill. I'd be calling you and saying, okay, I have this. <laughs> you know, should I be concerned? Yes. Well, you know, we are very concerned when we see that frequent type of head turn, especially, you know, if the child is going to be below six months of age. And it does usually suggest that maybe the child sees much better with one eye or the eyes are misaligned. But right. are are there other physical types of findings that um, a physical therapist would be very, very concerned to look for when you see that head turn for a young child like that? I'm not sure I understand. That's the first thing I think of is is the vision. Yes. Um, except that if if it's if you're describing something, I don't want to uh, misunderstand. But if you're describing something where you know, say you're working with a child and all of a sudden their their head turns, you know. Yes. I've had that happen to me too, and sometimes it's seizures. So you know, and they can be like absentia seizures, and but you get this repetitive motor pattern with it as well. Um, and I, you know me and Tori knows me and Judith knows me long enough. You know, we've had certain children like that where, and and it was seizures and it's not well received <laughs> that, that was picked up. But, you know, and, and when you're working with them physically, you know, that, and, and you see that because you're, you're changing positions and all of a sudden the child is engaged with you and then they, you know, you lost them. Yes, yes, and and it's it's really quite quite prominent, you know, where they suddenly turn their head, and uh, a lot of times their eyes will begin to roll slightly, not all the way up into right. the eye socket, but slightly. But uh, so there aren't too many physical types of situations that a a young a young infant would have that would force them to turn their head, or that their head would always be turning towards a particular shoulder. No, but, you know, the other thing that it brings up to me is this, is um, I've had situations where children who are visually impaired and um, their hearing is so strong that that's, that's something that I've seen too. Is that, and so it's, it's not a seizure. It's a different, it's a different type of um, diversion. You know, but it's it's like they because they don't they don't have their vision to rely on, and you see them kind of follow with their head with the with the with the noise, and that I don't even hear. Yes. You know? 
Yeah. And until until I'm watching the child and I'm like, oh, and then I realize that that's what's going on. You know, yeah. I'm busy watching the child and, you know, working with them. And then, so I've had that experience too, that, that, um, but that's why I would, there, there's other, there's other professionals that have to rule that out. You know, is it a seizure? Is it just an auditory response? Is it, you know, is it yeah. because they don't have the vision to rely on? But that's, that's another little tidbit there. Yes, and for the audience, you know, when when we as eye doctors, when we see the child with that type of head turn, again, we first think maybe they see better with one eye versus the other. Number two, mm-hmm. maybe the child has seen double vision, and by turning the head, they're eliminating the double vision. And number three, mm-hmm. they may be turning the head because they have a loss of peripheral vision on mm-hmm. one entire half of their visual field. And so they will turn their head towards the blind visual field. So if a child has suffered from a stroke, such as many premature children may have suffered from a brain hemorrhage or other stroke, let's say that the child cannot see on the left side with both eyes. Well, Mm -hmm. that type of visual field loss is due to a hemorrhage or a lesion to the right side of the brain. And these kids will turn their head to the right, excuse me, their eyes Mm -hmm. to the right and their head to the left to to compensate. So the head turns really seem Mm -hmm. to be first more of an indication of something visually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, now what about those kids? And we do see this, you know, as the kids get older and they're now starting to walk, you know, it looks so cute. You could say, look at this little girl. She's walking on her tiptoes. Does she think she's walking on high heels or what? Tell us what's going on with these toe walkers, Nancy. <laughs> that's a that's a nice little segue, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> what the heck's going on there, Nancy? Yes. Well, yes. it depends on who Ex- you ask. <laughs> explain that because Boy, that that could be a challenging one for a lot of parents. <laughs> yes, it can. Well, the, my my rule of thumb is nowhere in development is toe walking acceptable. Persistent toe walking acceptable. Okay, um, and this is this is what we're seeing a lot more toe walkers. And again, you know, I I don't know what it is. Um, and you know from working with me that I have all my kids checked visually um, because I, I want to know if it's a, you know, is it a depth of field? Is it, is it you know, a depth perception issue? Would they respond to prisms? Things like that. But a lot of times what will happen is that, unfortunately, the pediatricians are, um, are, are told by their orthopedic colleagues that, oh, don't worry about it. They, they grow out of it. And so in... Um, Ten years ago, I wrote a publication on toe walking uh, for the American Physical Therapy Association, and um, and I spent a year looking at this, and I um, compared it. It was toe walking compared to cerebral palsy, um, and but was it really idiopathic? That was the 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 question that I presented, mm-hmm. and. Um, what I found was that the belief in the orthopedic surgeon community was that they believe that the kids would usually come down at the age of seven because the 
weight of the gastrox can't hold them up on their toes. But I had the opportunity since I was looking at this for so long that I got to meet family members. I, I always ask if there's toe walkers in the family because there, there tends to be a, um, a, a, a tendency towards toe walking if, if, if it's familial. Um, and um, as adults, I would ask them, you know, can you give me what your experience has been? And every single one of them said, I have so much pain. I have pain in my back. I have pain in my feet. So I am trained as a physical therapist. So if I'm working with children, what I want to do is prevent that when they get older. But the other thing that I found was that as the kids started to come down because of the, the tightness of it, the, they still had tight heel cords. Um, they tended to, the, the heel cords would move medially so that heels could flatten down laterally and the foot would turn out and cause what's called external tibial torsion. And so, but you still have this underlying propensity to toe walk and now you've got the external tibial torsion. They're usually locked down in their low back. And so my I kind of came full circle because at first I thought, well, well, let's look at what we can do with our orthotic. And um, so I started making these little low orthotics that were like low boot, ankle high boots to prevent them from going up on their toes. Except that I, although they walked heel toe, when we took the orthotics off, it didn't change their gait. I got no carryover. I found when they went, the children went to the orthopedist, they put them in hinged AFOs, and that just gave them another gait deviation. And so what I started um, to do, I, after attending presentations and lectures by um, Elaine Owen, who's from, she's a British physiotherapist, um, Lisa Prasad, and Billy Cusack. So we've looked at this, and... Um, Billy actually designed this orthotic with uh, her orthotist in Telluride, Colorado, and it just looked like a space boot. And I, you know, I said to my friend in New York, who happens to be an orthotist, I said, ah, you know, those dogs will hunt in L.A. or Cal or New York. You know, we're just we can't put kids in space boots. They're just not. <laughs> families will never go for this. You know. <laughs> So I said, it'll, it'll, it'll go, it'll work well in flyover country, but they're not going to take it here, you know. So that kind of presented me with a big challenge, like, what do I do? Can I take those concepts and then make my own intervention? So that's where I'm actually at now, and I'm getting the most success I've ever had in um, converting toe-walking gates into heel-toe gates. And I don't use bracing. And so um, you're probably all on the edge of your seats by now and saying, but how does she does this, do this? So I started looking at measurements of the kid, the children. I, I do a full postural structural assessment, and then I take the measurements of the, um, the children of their, of their ankles um, with their knees bent and their knees straight. And I take those measurements. They're called the R1 and R2 of two different muscles, the soleus, the underlying muscle, and the gastroc, which is the muscle that goes from behind the knee to the, to the heel cord. And um, I, I'm finding that a lot of times, and by the time I get the kids, it's like PT forensics. Um, so I can get children that anywhere from two to 
to eight years old that are toe walking. And um, I, what I've been doing is I've been taking the, the finding out if, a, they have a leg weight discrepancy, which I can tell you that almost 99% of them do, even though the slightest amount, um, which is going to throw them off. And then secondly, is um, I look at these uh, the data that I collect on the length of the muscles, and I take that, and if they're lacking anything um, 10 degrees or below, which they usually are, I take a wedge and I put it in the high top sneaker and it's been working really well. So it's a very inexpensive intervention that, um, and I don't see the kids in therapy. Um, I, cause I say to the family, wow. I, I can't put my hands on them enough, you know, I can't. And, I'm, and why are you telling them to go back down on their heel? They're, they're not doing this intentionally. So I want to know if their vision is okay. I want to know, like, if there's any postural asymmetries. I want to know what their um, – I take the data on their range of motion, um, and then I go from there. And, I mean, it's like I say to them – I have I have had families come in. I say to them, stop at Target and get a pair of Converse high tops on your way. Yeah, <laughs> it works. <laughs> it works. It's crazy. It works. Is that right? Yes. Wow. You know, yes. and that's so much more affordable than having the space boots made. Thousands of dollars. I mean, we're talking thousands of dollars in in orthotic fees, and plus those orthotics end up in the closets. The, the kids don't want to be different, right? You know, when That's you get right. kids, school age kids, huh? yeah, five, five and above, forget about it. You know, so you've really got to think like, how might you be able to, you know, use your, um, you know help those kids. And, and also the other thing is, do you really want to start putting a kid at five to eight years old in physical therapy? I mean, that's really, I mean, really? Right. That's kind right. of silly. You can't put your hands on them enough. I, I know a lot of physical therapists don't want to hear that, but you know, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't work, you know? I mean, there's other modalities you can use. You can kinesio tape their, them and, uh, you know, to help them get, get that sensation of, of, um, you know, having a dorsiflex foot and stuff like that. But I mean, so that's what I've been doing and, and it seems to be working really well, but those are the things that I have to make sure that are all, you know, all, all my ducks are in a row, you know, like I, I need to, um, eliminate any other, um, variables that may be contributing to that gate. And then once I get them down, if I still have that external tibial torsion, if their feet are still turning out, you know, then what I do, as long as I have the range of motion, I, I give them low-profile foot orthotics with a four-foot extension that helps to bring their foot into neutral. And, it, I mean, it just works amazingly well. Knock wood. If I would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's really something. You know, I have a question, though, about the wedge that you put into uh, the high-top converse. Uh, physically, what is it really doing for that child? Is it helping them to stretch their heel cord, or what? What is that actually forcing them to do, or is it more sensation? It, 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 no, what what we're doing is we're bringing the ground reaction force up to the heel, and it that that will help to release 
the tightness in those muscles and the and the soft tissue so that so incrementally I can bring it down. So as I see them getting any more range, because I'll see them like every four months for a recheck and I'll go through and I'll collect the data and then I change the wedges out. So I may start with like 10, 12 degree wedges. Say I've got a child with a, um, you know, a leg length discrepancy on top of the fact they're toe walking. So one side's going to be a little bit longer. Two degrees is an eighth of an inch. So I'll use that, you know, like, and, and I, I do these calculations. And then I start the next time I see them, okay, um, am I still at the same? If I'm still at the same, I keep it. If, they're, if they've got increased range of motion, then I lessen the wedge. I check the leg length discrepancy. So that's the way I do it. And I have one child, I've seen him nine, in nine months, he's completely flat. It's, wow. It just blew me out of the water. And I mean, I never expected this. I mean, wow. you know, like it was just, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it was significant, significant. And, so. And what, what's also just so fantastic, I mean, these kids, when they get older to be adults, they won't have that type of back pain that these others, adults today They're, have because they were toe walkers. Yeah, yeah. And, and you see them and it's like, you just you just know that, and because they're they're locked down in their um, in their lumbar spine in the lumbar sacral junction, and um, you could just see the way they hold themselves. You know, they're just their pelvis is completely locked, and um, and it's just the, the the tightness in their body, the rigidity in their body, and it's from lack of range of motion, but also pain. You know. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Is it still a a point where many uh, Pediatricians, they often will believe that a child who is toe walking, oh, they'll just outgrow it. Or are they understanding the type of work that you're doing? And are they now making those referrals for these young children? Well, the pediatricians locally do. You know, they'll, you know, they're okay. actually pretty good about it. Yeah, and mm-hmm. um, and and then also like word of mouth from parents. You know, like they'll or um, that. That little website from Webmaster Bill, you know, Bill mm-hmm. Russell, he, I mean, people will find me. And it's probably because of that publication that I wrote for the APTA. Um, so uh, because that's out there in the, in the, um, what's it, the cyberspace, it's floating around out there. So, and if anybody wants it, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to share it. Yes. You know, know, I have the PDF file, yeah. What yeah, is, I can send what, that to you. Bill. What is what is your uh, email address, email address or your web address? Well, the the website you can get me through the website. It's footprints pediatric physical therapy dot com. Footprints pediatric physical therapy dot com. Okay, right. great, great. And so, um, and there's a that, number of uh, actually there's a number of um, uh, publications. I, I have a publication on. Um, the, the idiopathic toe walking is on it. The uh, influence of inclined wedge sitting on infantile postural kyphosis, the link to that article, and also the NDT, neurodevelopmental treatment and visceral manipulation, uh, complementing uh, interventions. So I have that on there too. Oh, that's great. That is really great. I don't know where you find the time to publish these papers because that's a lot of work doing that. Gosh, that's so great. OCD. Well, <laughs> OCD. <laughs> I don't sleep, I have OCD. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, let's, 
go ahead and let's open it up to questions. Uh, if any of you have a question, you could unmute your phone by pressing star six. And if you would just introduce yourself and go ahead and ask Nancy a question, we'll go ahead and see how many of these questions that we could take on the call right now. So again, unmute your phone and announce yourself and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take that question. Does anybody have a question? I do. I have a question. This is Amanda. Yeah, go ahead, Amanda. Uh, Thank you. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Nancy. Um, so I have a question. Um, I have a four-year-old uh, little girl who I started about maybe five months ago, um, referred to me because of uh, toe walking. Andrew, just a minute. And um, the problem is, is you know, it sounds like the wedge system um, works really well when you have actual shortening of of the heel cord. Um, but she went through a series of castings to lengthen the muscles, and actually her range is pretty good. Um, the problem is, is she's now been out of the serial casting for it's been about a month, and I'm starting to see her go back up on her toes. Mhm, mhm. Mm and so it's not yeah. necessarily a range of motion limitation that taking her up right. into her uh, toe Could walking. be habits. It's a habitual. So I guess exactly. my question is, is I, I definitely have been trying to communicate to the orthopedist um, about, and now I'm fearful that she's going to lose all the range that we've just um, achieved through mm -hmm. the serial casting. Um, and secondly, in, in those cases, do you, do you then use orthotics like an AFO? No, because you're creating another gait deviation with it. The, and they don't, I never saw the carryover when you got them out of the AFOs. What I would do is, you know, if the parents can get some high-top sneakers, I get the wedges through progressive gateways and just just give her, you know, if, if she's, even though she's got the full range of motion, um, just check. Make sure the soleus and the, and the gastrox, see what that range is. Allow for that. If she does, say she's got like 10 degrees. Of, she's about she's 10 degrees of dorsiflexion with, with knee extended and, you know, the best I can, keeping that subtalar and neutral. I would, you know, what I would try, I would try 10 degrees, and she has no leg length discrepancies, right? You'll Check. have to look at that, but, but I'll tell you right now, an orthopedist will not consider a leg length discrepancy until it's an inch. And an inch is like falling off a cliff for a child. Right, okay. So I, I accommodate for those. And I, okay. and I did an anecdotal study in my office. I had six kids, all ambulatory, and every one of them caught up within four years, some of them like within a year. But what I would do is I would look for a leg length discrepancy, and then what I would do is get wedges through progressive gateways, mm -hmm. you know, that's Theratog, and mm -hmm. you can cut the wedge and then put it in a pair of high tops. See if you can get that heel strike. Okay. I, I guess my fear is that she's going to push up into toe away from the wedge. It's not, and you that, know. That's, and that's what I thought, too. When I wrote that okay. publication, I had such a hard time wrapping my head around, you're kidding me. They're really, this is really going to make them get a heel strike. And time after time, I'm seeing them get a heel strike. And you know what I did, too, is I, I made these wedges in my office, and I take Coban, and I... Um, I put it around, I, I play with it. I play with the amount I'm going to give them in terms of the degree of the wedge, and okay. then that's what I actually put in the shoe. 
So I've got okay. these little wedges I, I put on them, and, and if they get a heel strike, and I videotape them, you know, walking barefooted, videotape them in their shoes, videotape them with the wedge co-band onto their shoe, mm-hmm. and, you know, the parents will be begging you to do it. And this is inside the take, shoe. No, I, I co-band it to the outside of the shoe so you can see, so you can adjust oh. the amount of wedge you're going to give them. And then eventually you put that inside the shoe. A high top. It's got to be a high top. Because it but, does it will not you don't have enough counter on a regular shoe to put um the wedge in. Like and, and, and you recommend a, the converse? The soft yeah, the converse, converse are fine. The converse okay. canvas converse are fine. And the other thing is this is what I found too. You can't use shoes that have a lot of give in the forefoot. You've got to have a stiffer forefoot. And oh, okay. Target just has a slew of stiff, cheap stiff <laughs> cheap cheap shoes with stiff forefeet. You know, okay. like I just—that's what I do. Yeah, I'm the one. I'm the woman in the aisle flexing the foot on the shoe. Right. You know? That's me. That's me, Amanda. <laughs> so, real quick, let me just review. So, you're going to trial the wedge on the outside of the shoe, underneath the shoe. Co- attach, attach it with the co-band. And then, if we're the getting a proper heel strike, then you will eventually make that. Then you'd put that actually inside the shoe. That's right. And okay. I'll tell you, serial and the serial casting. Great, thanks. You got the range, but they still got the habit. And if you yeah. put them in a brace, it's just gonna it's just gonna give them that another gait deviation. What if it's like an AFO that has a free free dorsiflexion, so it's just blocking the plantar flexion? I know you're talking about a Tammy too, and I'm telling you right now that mm. or even if, if they just or they look like three. Frankenstein walking. I know exactly what you're talking about, but okay. even a DAFO three is. I don't I don't use the DAPO three at the height of the DAPO three three. That's the one that I designed to to make into an SMO with a solid back. Right. So I use like a number four, and I ask for a, you know a solid back. But okay. it just you're going like I said, you will not. She will not have the carryover. Okay. Okay. I haven't started anything. You know, I haven't started any processes yet. So. Um, and we, we've worked with Beverly Kusick in the past. We, we were so fortunate to have her come to our clinic and just work mm-hmm. with, us, with us three therapists. Oh, so you've seen the brace masters that they designed. Um, yeah, in one of her classes. She didn't bring it that day. Um, but, yeah, no, I have can, taken her class can. where she's brought those shoes that she's made. No, no, not those. The, but if you, if you Google brace master, you'll see the, those. Or I'm writing it down. They're orthotic. Um, they're AFOs, and they, they have lace-up fronts. If you email me, I'll send you a picture of it. And then they've got incremental wedging on them. And they're just hideous because you can't <laughs> wear shoes with them. And and they say, you know, only two hours a day. And I'm like, why? Why? You can put them in a shoe, and they could be in it all day long, and they right, get better right. faster. Okay. And so, well, right, Joe? So I hear you laughing at me. <laughs> well, you thank you, Nancy. I'm going to try. We have some uh, wedges that we've ordered in the past from her, from the Progressive uh, Gateways. So I'll, I'll look at what, uh, you know, heights they are and, and then look at her. Um... Now, if she has full range, what wedge do I use? I just try all different ones to see which one gives her that heel strike. She has, okay, my suggestion, if she has full range and no a leg length discrepancy. I'd start at ten degrees. Ten degrees. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for okay. for your time very much. Thank oh, you you're so very much. welcome. Thank you, Amanda. I just laugh at this because it it is just so wonderful. It is so amazing to see how excited 
you folks are about your work. I wish that all the therapists and all the doctors had this type of excitement. We would see why your patients are getting better. So thank you so much. And uh, Nancy, I want to thank you for your time and all of this information. This is really excellent. Thank you. And what is the best way that you would like people to get in touch with you? Um, go ahead and go through the website, and then um, you can get my email from there. It's just a lot easier. They could just, you know, send an email, and I'll get right back to them. Okay, great. And I just wanted to let everybody know that we will have these podcasts up and available. Uh, thank you to Dick Burden Airs LA for recording. It will be up at the BrailleInstitute.org webpage, as well as www.airsla. That's www.airsla.org, and we'll also get that on over to uh, Nancy's website, A-I-R-S-L-A. Airsla.org. Okay, great. Thanks, Dr. Bill. And uh, Sue, so what do we have next month? Well, next month is the uh, final um, uh, in this series of the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series. And um, typically what we've done is a Ask Dr. Bill uh, setting, uh, situation, but uh, we're also working on maybe another special guest. So I would say just stay tuned, and we'll be sending out announcements very soon. Okay, great, great. Okay, everybody. Well, thank you very, very much, and Nancy, thank thank you. you.